Hello, I'm Lindsay and welcome to Heroin City, the podcast that champions women in history, putting them back into the history books and in people's minds. Today, we are talking about Henrietta Howard. talking about Henrietta Howard, we have the wonderful Dr. Tessa Kilgariff. She is a curator of collections and interiors at English Heritage with responsibility for two 18th century villas, Chiswick House and Marble Hill. A specialist in 18th and 19th century British art, she received her PhD from the University of Bristol prior to joining English Heritage. She was assistant curator at Watts Gallery, Artist Village in Compton, Surrey, and has previously completed curatorial projects at the British Museum and the National Portrait Gallery. Welcome, wonderful Tessa, to our Heroin City podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been waiting for this one. If it's okay with you, for those people that don't perhaps know Henrietta Howard's name, give us an overview of who she is and why we should know more about her. So Henrietta Howard was an amazing 18th century woman. She was someone who grew up in a fairly privileged family. She came from a noble family. She was actually born in London because London had the best healthcare at the time and that's where her mother travelled to to have her. But then she spent her childhood at Blickling Hall, which is in Norfolk. In her life, she became a courtier. She's perhaps best known for being the official mistress of King George II. But one of the things that we're going to get into today is all the other fascinating things about Henrietta beyond her romantic history. Her life as a courtier, as a woman of wit, as a literary individual, and as a builder of Marble Hill, which is a beautiful Palladian villa on the banks of the Thames in Twickenham. Yeah, even just that term mistress, there's so much we can talk about just with that. When you put that into context of everything else she did, it really opens up this fascinating trajectory that she was absolutely in control of. Before we get to that part of her life, you mentioned Blickling. I know that name because of the Howard family. At this point, she's already coming from quite a prestigious background, but there were troubles at home, I hear. Yes, there were troubles. Henrietta's father, a man called Henry Hobart, who I'm reliably informed his name should actually be pronounced Hubbard. Her father, he'd inherited the estate and the estate already had some debts, but then he ran a fairly ruinous political campaign. He kind of accrued various debts within that, and he lost this political campaign to be Member of Parliament for that area. And Henry was furious about this, and he laid the blame at his opponent's door and said that Oliver Leneve had slandered him, said various things about his military conduct. Henrietta's father was furious about this and challenged his opponent to a duel. And dueling was very much frowned upon, and this was probably Norfolk's last duel, in fact. Her father lost. Um, He was unfortunately killed. That left Henrietta's siblings and her mother in a very dire state because their estate Blickling was saddled with debt and they no longer had a head of the family, as it were. You can see why dueling was frowned upon. Um, because it doesn't really usually end well and it didn't for her so what are the sources obviously she's come from a noble family we are really lucky in that Henrietta was a fantastic correspondent she wrote to many important interesting influential people during her lifetime we'll talk about her friends later you know people like Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift and Lord Chesterfield all of these wits and writers and she has really entertaining correspondence which is all now at the British Library in terms of the records the inventories of the things that she owned legal records, things associated with Blickling Hall and also Marble Hill 
those are all at Norfolk Record Office. I know we write emails, but my goodness, we should get back to letter writing. Do you think we ever will? In my job, a lot of what I do is going back to paper files. And I'm not just talking about archives. I'm also just talking about what were the curators doing in 1990 that might help me to understand why we've got this particular object. They're that kind of moment in the early 2000s when you're moving to computers, but some people are still faxing stuff. You know, the paper files are the most reliable. I hadn't even thought of it like that because I was thinking we have so much now because obviously you can take a photo on your phone and it's there and it's stored. What I was thinking was that you don't get the nuance necessarily because you haven't got thoughts or ideas necessarily written down in the same way. Do you find that as it's as the digital age has taken over? I do actually because normally in the curatorial files that I'm often referring to in my role, you'll go back and there'll be a fax that someone has sent, but then it will be annotated. Somebody's response to that fax or, or a post-it note that says notes from a phone call. All of that incidental stuff around the edges, the marginalia of the job which is so useful to actually figuring out what people were thinking and why decisions were taken. Which is all a huge part of history because, let's face it, it's all about how we frame it, isn't it? You know, that's what your job is. Your job is to decide what parts of these things we take and frame and go, OK, this is the story. And this is why we're talking about Henrietta now, because it's a modern revisionist lens where we go, hold on a minute. How have we not talked about all these wonderful things that she did, as well as the fact that she was part of the royal household? Did you know about Henrietta before you came to work for English Heritage? Only in the context that she owned Marble Hill. I would say that was the only thing I really knew about Henrietta. She's not a household name yet. We're working on raising her profile. And I think, you know, the project that's recently come to completion at Marble Hill has done a lot. Prior to that, I was aware that the wonderful historian Tracy Borman had written a biography of Henrietta. But beyond that, I had very little context to her life. So it's been a real pleasure to discover her. Me too. I found that book because I heard her name mentioned to do with Gunnersbury House. And then I found the book. So yeah, moving on, we have the jewels. So the family are in dire straits, lots of debt, lots of children. What happens next? So Henrietta is sent to stay with some relatives. Um, you mentioned Gunnersbury House, and that's where those relatives were staying. And she did that because it was an opportunity for Henrietta to get away from Blickling Hall, meet more people, and hopefully find a husband. She knew that that was the next obvious step for her. Um, she's experienced a lot of loss at this point. I don't think we mentioned that Henrietta's mother also passed away three years after her father had died. So Henrietta, aged 12, was an awful often has experienced a lot of loss. Some of her siblings also pass away very young, quite a somber period between about the ages of 12 and 16. At 16, she's staying with some relatives at Gunnersbury House and there she is introduced to Charles Howard. Charles Howard becomes her husband. They marry when she is 16. He is around 30, quite a significant age gap, although this is not especially unusual at the time. And that, I would say, is where Henrietta's problems worsen or change, shall we say. Initially, I think she is very glad to have found a husband. He's a military man, as he will be able to provide for her. She gets pregnant quite quickly, so she has her first and only son at the age of 17. But things swiftly go downhill. And that's because Charles Howard is a spendthrift. He is a gambler. He is abusive towards her verbally, physically, and he is also a philanderer. And so she has all of this to contend with. They move around various different short-term addresses in the early years of their marriage, which is very much suggesting that they keep being unable to pay the rent and kind of getting kicked out of places. They go and stay with various different family members who also continue to kick them out because of Charles's behaviour. And also, 
Henrietta has the further indignity of Charles just disappearing for weeks or months at a time. So she is essentially abandoned. It's improper for her to be going anywhere in society without him. It very much limits what she's able to do as well. That's how we get to Henrietta living in Beak Street in Soho in poverty at this point, living under an assumed name. She doesn't want people to know who she is, unable to buy herself any new clothes. Her clothes are in rags at this point because she would rather spend the money on feeding her son. She's gone from a very comfortable early start in life to considerable poverty. Soho at this point is a very undesirable address. It's known for being violent and unsafe. It's not the kind of place that she would have been wanting to bring up her young son. That just makes her relationship with her son even more tragic, doesn't it? The fact that, that she was there with him and making sure that he was fed above all. And then it turns out it doesn't end well with those two. And that's really, really sad. This is the fascinating thing about Henrietta is that it could have ended so differently. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things to always remember about her. If she hadn't had such a strength of character and um, a kind of tenacity and an urge to not allow her life to be derailed by her husband's behaviour, she wouldn't have found her way to Hanover and a, a way to transform her fortunes, really. And this is why we need to talk about her, because this is about a woman who basically was dealt a hand that gradually just got taken away and she was left with not a lot in that hand, but she used it and managed to claw her way back. So we've talked about her being now... In in Soho, she must have been at this point thinking, right, what resources do I have? What can I do right now? What was her next move? So her next move was essentially to sell off all of her remaining clothes, furniture, jewels, anything she had in order to buy herself passage, her and her husband, importantly. She couldn't have gone on her own to Hanover. Why Hanover? (laughs) Right, that's another fascinating thing. I know she had to still be seen to have a functioning marriage, especially with a child. She couldn't just leave him behind. So not only was she saving herself, she was saving the husband that was causing her all the trouble. No, it's incredibly frustrating. And she must have had so many conversations with him where she was kind of trying to explain, we are yoked together. Yes, you can go off and leave me but I don't just disappear when you're not here you're leaving me subjects me to as much pain as your presence because then I am kind of stuck and I can't go anywhere and you've burnt all the bridges with our families by your behavior yeah, you just but- see her putting out all the fires behind him all the time there are many women unsung heroes that have been doing that this is being the wife of an addict and the wife of someone that obviously had compulsive behavior well let's not talk about him we should say she had a hearing problem as well did she have that at this stage well probably Henrietta had progressive hearing loss we know from her correspondence where she talks quite a lot with various friends about her hearing that it was definitely her late 20s, early 30s, that she certainly starts writing about experiencing deafness. We don't know if that was happening before, but it seems to have been progressive. Her deafness seems to have increased later in life. Used a hearing horn for lots of her later years. There are quite a lot of interesting and entertaining notes in the correspondence or letters to her that mention the fact that, you know, Henrietta was much better at talking than she was at listening. Let Henrietta tell you her fantastic tales of court life or of her literary knowledge rather than the other way around. So this is something that also endears her to me because I have a progressive hearing disorder, which I didn't really realise I had until it was pointed out to me. So it does make sense that it crept up because that's how it happened with me. And her hearing is something that doesn't appear to have ever um, held her back in any way from, you know, the, the, the rest of her trajectory in her life, which I won't preempt too much. But um, it was something that was remarked upon, something that she sought to alleviate using tools such as the hearing horn. Maybe you should get them. They're quite stylish, I think. Um, Maybe I'll bring them back. Maybe that's <laughs> what I'm going to do. 
they carry it around in my backpack. So what's that? You're playing the bugle these days, Lindsay. No, no, no. It's just so that I can hear you when I want to, when I choose to hear you, that is. Exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, maybe I get like a jeweled version or something. That's something. Maybe I'll just make it bling. So we are thinking about Hanover. Explain why Hanover, for those that don't know. And how is she going to do this with no money? And she's not able to even dress herself properly at this point. So what's going to happen next? The reason she wants to go to Hanover is because the Hanoverian succession is incoming. So you've got Queen Anne on the British throne. Queen Anne is elderly at this point and she hasn't had an heir. And that's a great sadness to Anne who had many pregnancies which did not result in a healthy child and she experienced an immense amount of loss. And so Anne is going to pass and everyone is aware that this is probably fairly imminent because she seems quite unwell. In order to have a Protestant succession rather than a Catholic succession, which is not possible due to change um, in the law, to ensure Protestant succession, the British crown will have to turn to Hanover, where the Hanoverians are living. So this Electress Sophia, that's the person everyone thinks will take over from Anne. Electress Sophia, much like Anne, is an elderly lady, but she's full of whipper-cracking spirits and seems to be in good health. And so that, that's what everyone is anticipating. Along with many other noble families who are interested in achieving a place in the incoming royal court, go over to Hanover to ingratiate themselves with the court that's there in the hope that when Queen Anne passes and Electra Sophia comes to claim the throne, they will be offered official court positions. And with that comes a salary, comes apartments um, in Kensington Palace, comes titles, comes status, comes all of the things that if you are a noble, you might desire. So at the minute, it's kind of fake it till you make it. She's scraping together food for the child. But at this point, she's like, right, what have we got? We've got status and at the minute I can still use that as long as he toes the line so I guess that yeah. at this point she's got to bring him with to create this idea of who they are as a couple so that she can ingratiate herself with the incoming royal family yes and though Charles was completely wayward he was also ambitious mm. and he wanted money to fuel his various addictions and so even though he doesn't particularly want to spend any time with Henrietta, he knows that going to Hanover is really the best thing for him and his social climbing ambitions as well. So they get on the boat together, they do go. Finally, but doesn't she have a couple of issues where he's absolutely like stealing the money that she's oh, amalgamating? Yes. She yeah. stows all the money away, we believe under floorboards to hide it from him, finds the money and spends it. And so she has to start all over again. We think that she had to go back to various family members and, and kind of beg them and say, Charles stole the money and please, please, please. And she manages to scrape together again a bit of money for the passage over to Hanover. You have to imagine how frustrated you would have felt. Also, you've got to think about this point. Although Henrietta has moved between London and Norfolk, she's never been beyond the coastline. So even the idea of going to Hanover would have been probably for some less bold people, it's just beyond the pale to sort of go on that voyage, which would have been dangerous. They didn't have enough money to have good passage. So it was going to be quite a, a bumpy ride. But she has the tenacity to say, I'll start again. I will make it happen. And then they, they get there. And on her own terms, I think, because the thing is, although she's tied to this man, 
she's a woman in this era, her options are few. What she's doing is not sitting back and going, okay, well, I'm going to live with family members and go that route, which she obviously perhaps could have done. I know he was you know, a problem, but you know, she maybe could have gone, like, take me, don't worry about him. I also don't know how much she would have told all of her family members about uh, what the reality of the situation with Charles is. We can only speculate on that because she's never clear about a lot of the detail that we know about Charles's behaviour is letters that she wrote to him later in life. And we don't know at that point, you know, was she being honest with people? You've got to remember that she was in, you know, late teens, early 20s. And it would have been so embarrassing for her that her husband was acting like this. And how honest was she really being with everyone about this abusive marriage that she'd ended up in? And that's exactly it, isn't it? This is the thing, like you say, it shows the mark of the character. Luckily, young to have the energy to keep fighting. But she was like, no, this is not my story. This is not how this is going to go. And that is fascinating. Could have been many different trajectories, but this is the one that she chose. Wasn't there an incident about her hair as well? Oh, that... she thinks about selling her hair and she sort of goes to like get a quote for how much it would make her. And she's really scraping the bottle of the barrel. Just to give some sort of idea of her resourcefulness and what she was prepared to do because she could see a route forward and she was going to go for that route forward. So she does, she manages to get over to Hanover with the two men in her life, her son and her husband. So what happens then? We're talking, this is 1714, am I right? Yeah, this is kind of right before Queen Anne passes away and the kind of Hanoverian succession happens. So she gets there and Electra Sophia immediately likes Henrietta. Of course. because Henrietta is witty and she's funny and she's discreet and she's an intellectual and she seems to know her own mind. And Electra Sophia is also all of these things. And I think they must have seen eye to eye quite closely. She is charming, essentially. And somewhat amazingly, Charles manages to be charming too. People seem to like him and seem to think that he's a good sort. Charles always had a a veneer of respectability. He was able to turn it on when it was really necessary, which was probably another thing that drove Henrietta completely insane because he seems to have quite a split personality type, really. He could turn it on to get what he wanted. There's another element of her keeping it done because actually it's not necessarily that anyone would believe her either. Things were going on or they would lay the blame on problems with the marriage on the woman in the scenario. We all know people people like that. We all know people that can just turn on the charm and the charisma, but you don't know until you live with someone what they're really like. So I'm getting a really good picture. And I love the idea of Electra Sophia seeing her and recognising another firebrand woman, because that's exactly who she was. We'll do another podcast on her at some point. I hadn't realised that those two had met as well, so that's nice. Yes. And then the sad thing happens is that Electra Sophia ends up predeceasing Anne. So she dies quite suddenly, taking a walk in the gardens probably had some kind of stroke or something and, and very quickly is gone. And that throws everyone into a bit of a, oh, it's going to be her son then, the future King George I. And Charles has managed to make some good progress with him. So he is in with that side. Henrietta manages to quite swiftly, again, showing her adeptness, transfer her allegiance or friendship from Electra Sophia to Princess Caroline. So she is the wife of Prince George, so the grandson of Electress Sophia. It's just come to me now because I've never really thought about this, but they're all there. Everyone's turning up from left, right and centre in Hanover. Obviously, the family know what's happening. How do you deal with that? I'm trying to envisage 
Is it gifts? Is it letter writing? How do they ingratiate themselves at that point? They would have written to say that they were here or that they're coming. And then they would present themselves at court in a very kind of formal lineup. You need to have a noble title, a noble background, a noble name to fall back on. And then you would present yourself at court. And then you get maybe invited to some kind of do and then you just got to be charming and you've got to hope people like you and then you get invited back and then eventually once Queen Anne then also passes and it's official it's going to be King George I now the tussle is really on to actually secure a formal salaried position within the court and they need them too they need an entourage <laughs> they need a court that they can trust that can do what they need and also to. Because the Hanoverians, not all of them spoke much English. They didn't necessarily know the customs of the British court. They probably knew to a certain extent that they were going to need these people to show them how the court works when they arrive in England. Henrietta knew this. She knew this Mm. very well. She's multilingual as well then. She definitely would have known some French and some German words and different people had different language skills. But Henrietta was very intelligent and would have had, I think, some fluency in a range of languages. It's difficult to tell because most of her correspondence is in English, but she definitely knew quite a lot of French and would have picked things up, I feel. She's still very young at this point as well. Yeah, it would have been that she perhaps spoke to them in French. If there was one language in common, then that was what you needed to get by, wasn't it, sometimes? They've all found out it's George, it's official, and he's George Mm -hmm. I. How does that work? Is that when they all just go, right, we've booked a ticket, we're off? Essentially, yes. There is a removal of the court, and Henrietta and Charles are part of that. And so the position that Henrietta actually gets is woman of the bedchamber in the household of Princess Caroline. I can mention a few of her duties within that. She's got to basically attend and be around whenever Caroline wants her to be. There are lots of good things about being a courtier, but also means you are under the beck and call of the royal household. She's also got to do things like when Caroline is dressing, she has to stand there with a basin (laughs) for... (laughs) however long, heavy basin of water so, you know, Caroline can wash. That's the kind of thing that Henrietta would have been doing. This is a practice that's happened for centuries. It's really interesting to me that that's the role. You know, when they go into service, they really do go into service. And actually, there was times where Caroline really pressed upon her, but we'll come to that. So a bit of an endurance test, I'm sure. But at the same time, she's got a goal in mind. She knows what she's doing. And at this point, probably plenty of people behind her that would love that role. Because isn't that the closest you can be to Caroline at that point? Yeah, it is a close role, definitely. Henrietta would have met other nobles out there who were vying for the same position, who didn't get it. She went there to achieve that and she got it. And Caroline is an interesting character as well, isn't she? I think Lucy Worsley absolutely adores Caroline because she was extremely intelligent and cultured, wasn't she? She was into the arts and literature. Do you think that's where Henrietta may have picked up some of her love for the arts? I think it's definitely possible. I mean, Caroline is known for having accrued a really impressive library and had a library built at St. James's. And she's known for her intellectual discussions that she had with important thinkers. I think they must have had some cross-influencing of of one another, perhaps. It would have opened up, I think, Henrietta's world, knowing these people. They are back in England, or they are in England. She's back in England. They have children at this point because they've been married for a little while, George and Caroline. Is that right? Yes. I mean, George I is another character that we could get into, but we're not going to. But obviously, there's a lot of turmoil going on with him. And Caroline is the Princess of Wales at this point. So she's the daughter-in-law. And we're talking about George II at this point. Yes. So he's now Prince of Wales. And he does not get along well with his father, the new king. And that is partly one of the reasons why the court 
is somewhat divided at this time and they don't spend that much time together the two courts essentially there's a kind of interesting rivalry but in a way because charles is in the household of the king and henrietta is in the household of one of the princesses they are geographically physically somewhat divided it allows her to get a bit of space from him and that is actually to her benefit and it does become more and more divided so they would be in different palaces doing their work even though they're in London or wherever. Exactly. When they were travelling, when people went hunting or they went on progresses or whatever, they weren't travelling together. So mm. again, more space from him. Happy days. But a drawback, her son. This also allows Charles to physically remove her little boy from her because he can say, oh, you know, son needs to be with his father or here and you need to be here so you can't see him. And that was a power play between Charles and Henrietta within their marriage, restricting access to the son. Another way he could emotionally abuse her, yeah, totally. This is where it starts to get really heartbreaking because that's pretty much it with those two, isn't it? Because, as is unfortunately his legal right at the time to kind of control access and control who his offspring spend time with, Charles is able to basically say to Henrietta, you're not allowed to see your son unless you do as I say, which is normally give me money. Even if she has none to give, importantly, And there are these really heartbreaking letters where she's writing to Charles saying, please, please, please let me see little Henry. And he's denying that access or saying, you know, you can't because you're so disobedient and you won't give me that money that is reservedly mine. Like that's always his line that like, you know, any, any, anything that she has should be his. He frequently takes it wherever he can, but wherever she tries to protect money he's gunning for it and eventually that leads Henrietta's son to very much feel through the drip drip of poison from his father your mother doesn't love you she doesn't care enough to come and see you you know the reason why your mother isn't seeing you is because she cares more about her money and her life at court and she doesn't care about you he grows up to resent his mother to feel that she abandoned him and very sadly they never seem to reconcile. He actually predeceases Henrietta. We don't think they actually really see each other at all in his adulthood. And yeah, he, he dies at 1746, quite a long time before Henrietta. Really sad. It should make me think as well, because obviously the Georges had their problems, the father-son relationship, because they were also estranged to their mothers. So it's kind of echoing what's going on in court in a way as well. I hadn't thought about it like that, but definitely it's very sad situation for Henrietta and also for her son because he never got to know the person that she was and he was denied that opportunity and vice versa the price of everything that she's trying to do nothing's ever simple it's always there's a trade-off isn't there they're in separate households she's writing to try and see her son she's friends with Caroline for all intents and purposes it seems like they have a great relationship so Henrietta and the Princess of Wales at what point Does that shift to the Prince of Wales rather than the Princess of Wales? What's going on there? She seems to have caught his eye when they were in Hanover, but the kind of official mistress journey doesn't seem to really start until they get back to England. And it was very much an expected part of court life for the prince, the um, heir apparent, to take an official mistress. The phrase you always hear is um, a necessary appendage to his grandeur. (laughs) Oh, we should just call her the official appendage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so Henrietta becomes the royal mistress. Tracy Borman has done a lot of work into trying to work out, you know, was it a romance? Was that what was chiefly driving this? Was it a relationship of convenience? Because George felt 
that he ought to take a mistress. The important thing you have to always remember is that George and Caroline were very much in love. As a married couple, they had a very successful partnership and seemed to have been a genuine love story. It's an up and down relationship, but like fundamentally, it wasn't just an arranged marriage that was kind of just convenient. So I think in a lot of ways, George is love story with with his wife but he needed to have a mistress too or so he felt maybe he goes for henrietta because she gets a reputation for being discreet sensitive and understanding and never really saying too much people sometimes call henrietta the swiss because you don't really know what she's thinking she's really good at remaining neutral she's good at towing the line she always has a light response to contentious issues. She knows how to smooth things over socially. Henrietta is someone who I think everyone can imagine being really socially adept, charming, great at parties, knows what to say, can charm everyone, but without kind of giving too much of themselves away. Perhaps those are some of the reasons why she is kind of chosen, as it were. And even because she is friends with Caroline, because if this is something, we were talking about George and Caroline genuinely having affection for each other, he feels like he has to do this thing. He feels like there has to be a role. It's a very uh, French court idea that you have to have a mistress and there's an official title for her and there's an official place in the royal household. You can imagine that he's like, how do I do this without ruffling feathers to try and make it look to be seemly, but, you know, and do it the right way, if there is a right way. And she's the one that makes the most sense on paper. You can see why. And I suppose because she's already in Caroline's household as well. It's convenient for everyone involved in a way. George is known for being a stickler for rules and regulations and obsessed with doing things on schedule. He would go down and see Henrietta at the same time pretty much every day when they were in residence at somewhere like Kensington. And he would actually stand there and look at the clock and wait for the clock to strike the time to be like, okay, that is the exact moment where I leave my room and I walk over to Henrietta's apartment to go and spend time with her, probably telling her about some very exciting military history that I have read that day. (laughs) I think this is partly why we just think, well, no, this was a business arrangement. This was not romantic because there's just nothing about that that makes you think, unless he was just absolutely couldn't wait to see her and was looking at the clock to sit but I think you're right I think that it speaks to the idea that it was like an official meeting rather than one of the heart I listened to a podcast where Tracy was talking about uh, what they actually did get up to in those very official rigidly timed meetings was it assumed certain activities were happening but in reality perhaps not it's somewhat difficult to tell I mean certainly they would have read to each other they would have talked about the day's news George would have told her about whatever was concerning him I do think she spent a lot of time smiling is my personal reading (laughs) of it. But yes, there does seem to be suggestions that it was also a physical romantic relationship by some, or certainly that's the kind of conclusion that Tracy has kind of drawn. And I very much follow her as the great Henrietta expert. And she has actually an interesting theory about whether or not there is any likelihood that um, Henrietta could have at one point had a child by the king, of which there was only very circumstantial suggestions and no hard evidence. That's what they probably would have gotten up to. Speaks to the kind of rumours that would have been going around at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Here again, we're getting another window into Henrietta's 
tenacity, her patience and her ability to say, okay, this is about the long game. Because obviously at this point she's thinking, okay, there's even more potential for me to set myself up here, ingratiate myself with another person at court in a very intimate way. So she would have been thinking about where hopefully this would lead as far as like her independence at this point. Am I right? Yes. I don't know if she would have had a clear idea of what this was going to mean to her, but Being the king's mistress certainly gave her better apartments at court because, you know, the king needs to come and visit her there. So she gets better apartments at court. Gives her a further degree of separation from her husband and gives her the anticipation of some kind of gifts in the future. Couldn't have been certain that she was going to get what she eventually got was which was a kind of financial gift but it made her think oh there's a source of money that i can have access to that isn't through my husband and that makes me think maybe one day in the future i could set up a home away from him i think that's Mm. probably what she was always and she must have maybe started to you know lay those breadcrumbs to the prince of wales have you thought about um, a home for me because at this point as well isn't it that prince of wales he doesn't like the husband he's kind of aware that there's some tension there am i right and also this speaks to his relationship with his own father doesn't it by this point the veneer of respectability that charles howard has managed to convey during his kind of early time as a courtier has worn off and people know what charles howard is really like now they know that he's a gambler they know that he's a philanderer, they know that he's not respectable. He manages to hold on to his position, but he's also just a thorn in everybody's side. People find him embarrassing. They don't want to be associated with him. And it's a constant embarrassment for Henrietta as well. There are times during their relationship in these years where Charles actually tries to kidnap Henrietta. Charles fluctuates wildly between kind of, I never want to see you again, and no, you're my wife, and I can tell you exactly what to do. And if I say, come here, you have to come here. And also it's about access to her money as well, because she's got some investments and money that have been set aside for her and small amounts of money, but he still wants access to it. There are various points where Henrietta actually physically cannot leave or Kensington Palace or Richmond Lodge or wherever she is, Because if she steps outside of the palace, Charles has got people watching it and they will come along in a carriage and scoop her up and take her away. It must have been a very frightening time for her. She's spending months basically not leaving her house in case she gets kidnapped. Just to have access to some of her money or as well, just because he wants to have power over her. And he says, you know, you're my wife. You should be with me. It's all very ugly between the Mm. two of them. And this is embarrassing for the king. This is embarrassing for Caroline. Nobody likes it. Everyone just would like Charles Howard to sort of go away, as would Henrietta. We don't know the exact reason why the king decides to give Henrietta a a financial gift, but he does that around 1723. And the reason the gift is so interesting, well, it's interesting for many reasons. It's um, about £11,500, and that's in stock, it's in jewellery, it's in furniture, it's in silver plate as well. So it's in a range of kind of items, as it were. The gift comes in a kind of legal package, as it were. So it comes with a sort of deed explaining what the gift is, even if it doesn't explain quite why it's being given. It says clearly in it that this is for Henrietta Howard and not for her husband, and that her husband has no legal claim over this gift. That is in the the wording, and he appoints trustees to oversee the gift, Lord Islay, for instance. That makes it very obvious to us as historians that this gift is being given for Henrietta alone, for her independence, to allow her to establish herself away from her husband. 
And therefore, that implies that everybody knows that Charles Howard is awful. They want Henrietta to be free of him. There's the irony. The poetic justice is that, you know, his pushing and pushing and pushing has actually enabled her independence in this scenario. Well, there you go. You see, karma gets you in the end. So at this point, she's like, amazing. What am I going to do with this gift? So it seems like she has a very clear idea of what she would like to do with this money because pretty much as soon as it's signed and sealed, Lord Islay, one of the trustees of the gift, goes ahead and buys a parcel of land at Marble Hill. Building is evidently on Henrietta's mind. She wants her own house. You have to think that she hasn't really ever had her own home for her entire life, and she has been vastly itinerant. She had this brief period in her early life where things were stable, and then as soon as her parents pass away and make her an orphan age 12, she's kind of been on the move ever since. And that must mm. do a lot of damage to your psyche and to feel that unstable and, and not, not having somewhere. So that is why Marble Hill, I think, is so important to Henrietta and why she puts the majority of, of the resources from the gift into building Marble Hill. It would have been something wrapped up in family and not having her son as well and all that feeling of not being able to, independent of a man in her life, provide a home. It must have been so huge for her, having had that start in her life and then not being able to do that for her son as a woman. It's huge when you think about it, psychologically. I mean, obviously, we're just, it's congested, but it makes sense that that would be the thing that she's trying to establish. The the other thing that makes sense, aside of Henrietta's character that we've touched on but haven't really um, fully explored yet, is about Henrietta's interest in design and architecture and the fact that she is, even before the building of Marble Hill, a subscriber to Vitruvius Britannicus, which is the kind of English language translation of Andrea Palladio, the Italian architect's teachings. And so she's reading about architecture. She's evidently someone who is interested in buildings and, and wants to build and wants to create something that's her own. Not only does she seem to have a desire for a home, but she's got a desire for a beautiful home and one that adheres to and Palladian principles and intellectual architectural style that she's so excited about. It's not just the home, it's the dream home. And she's obviously an atheist. She's obviously got this whole idea that's been building over time. And like you say, she didn't necessarily say that's my, but it was there, that need, that kind of desire. So I didn't realise how much she loved architecture. That harkens me back to people like Bess of Hardwick, so fantastic women who had vision um, and loved architecture. So yeah, she's got a parallel there as well, hasn't she? She's finally able to make this idea in her head this vision that she's got come to fruition but it doesn't happen quickly does it no it's quite a slow process so there's a fascinating letter that she writes to john gay who's the playwright who wrote the beggar's opera who's one of her great friends he's come to her rooms at the palace and he's seen an architectural plan probably one of the ones by colin campbell who is one of the architects who was involved in the designing of marble hill he's seen that and She writes to him saying, I beg you tell no one about the plans which you saw in my rooms. And so that to me suggests that the idea of Marble Hill is still very tenuous and she's worried about Charles finding out about it. Even though the the actual gift of the money is very, very clear, it actually even has a provision for if Henrietta uses this money to build a house, Charles will still have no claim over the house. Like, you know, it's that detailed, but she's still worried about it. That something will happen and Charles will somehow disrupt her plans. And so she keeps it all secret, all under wraps. In the 1720s, building does happen apace. And there are various letters. One of her friends writes to her saying, I've heard you are up to your ears in bricks and mortar. Which is a very kind of 
beautiful sentiment. The extent to which Henrietta was actually involved with the building of Marble Hill is quite difficult to ascertain. She's still kind of stuck at court with Caroline. She's not able to control her own time. So I don't know how often she would have been able to actually go to Marble Hill to look at the progress of the building works. Roger Morris is the name of the builder who actually does the directing of the build. Instead, what does she do? She has her friends go and check in on it. So you write to Alexander Pope <laughs> and you, you ask him to go and check in because he lives in Twickenham as well, very deliberately, along with the Palladian architecture. She's chosen a classically inspired spot at which to build her house. She's chosen down by the river. There's lots of other villas that have been built there. It's all very much aping kind of Italianate, Arcadian riverside landscape. You can see the life that she's envisioning for herself come together. And the house isn't actually really finished until the end of the 1720s. It takes them a good five years or so to finish building what they call the carcass of the house. And at this point, she's still mistress. Her daily duties are still there. And it makes sense that she would try and keep it quiet because that's her MO thus far is that she flies under the radar and she's very discreet and that's got the jobs and that's got her where she is. So when does the husband pass away? So he passes away in the early 1730s, but before he passes away, there is another important development, which is her managing to get a legal separation from him towards the end of the 1720s. She's still at court, she's still the official mistress, although it seems towards the end of her mistress-ship, if you will, that it was much more of an official role and less of a, an active relationship. They're seeing less and less of each other. The, the clockwork visits are not happening so clockwork anymore. His interests are elsewhere, even though I think he would have been quite happy to allow her freedom, actually, at this point. It's Princess Caroline who's keeping her around because it's a better the devil you know situation. Caroline would much rather that Henrietta, who has proven to be quite a docile mistress, not particularly ambitious for anything other than this gift and building herself an independent life, that he continues with Henrietta as his mistress, rather than going and finding a new mistress who might have more political power, might be more politically ambitious than Henrietta is, and ruffle more feathers. Caroline likes having control over her husband and is known for being this very intelligent, forthright, she's got a lot of views and a lot of opinions, and she feels like she's got the ear of her husband. She doesn't want to give that up. Henrietta remains in the official mistress role long after the passion has kind of fizzled, so that Caroline can maintain what Caroline feels is her influence over her husband. The other important change to Henrietta's circumstances is that with the help of various legal friends, Henrietta manages to negotiate a legal separation from Charles. This allows her to basically draw a line under the relationship. And this is where a lot of the letters come in. So we know about this legal separation and what led to it because Henrietta, with the advice of her lawyers, wrote him all these letters that detail the various ways in which he has been a bad husband and why he should consent to the legal separation, which eventually he does because he gets paid off a bit, which is really what he wants at this point, having gone through all, all the money that came with his court position and, you know, and everyone really understanding the true character of Charles Howard. She does manage to obtain this legal separation. She doesn't get a divorce, because although you can technically get a divorce in the 18th century, you have to get it by Act of Parliament, mm. and that entails a lot of public mudslinging, and it's very un 
in that she's this discreet person who doesn't like people knowing about her life. That makes sense. At this point, how old's the son? Is he grown up at this point? He would be a young adult by then, because she has him so young. But again, they're, they're not really in contact, which is a great shame. She's missing out on all these milestones that he's going through. I was just imagining that, that perhaps with all these things going right, she perhaps had a little hankering, that that would be the next thing that could fall into place a little bit if she's got her own place and she was able to see him independently of the husband. But then I guess at this point, legal separation from the husband may mean legal separation from the child as well. But then if he's an old enough person, I'm sure she had... There definitely seems to be multiple occasions where she seems to be trying to obtain a meeting or some kind of access to him. But I do also think that he doesn't have any interest in it. It's the difficult part of the equation that she can't control. So she's ploughing all her dreams and vision for the future into Marble Hill, which makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense with what she actually achieved with the place. Tell us a little bit more about that. So we've got the carcass of the place, the husband's separated. At what point does the husband pass away? So early 1730s. So she actually manages to leave court. She's been trying for a while. A lot of people think she's mad for leaving court as well. That's the interesting thing. And when you look at the rest of her story, this looks at the moment when she's breaking free. But all of her friends are like, why are you giving up your court position? You've been promoted at this point. You're the mistress of the robes. Being mistress of the robes means that she chooses Queen Caroline's clothing. She gets to dress the queen and choose her jewels. And that's also partly because Henrietta is known for her sense of style. She's trusted to dress Caroline appropriately. Because obviously it's not been all rosy with Caroline. So that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So at the point where she becomes the royal mistress initially, there is a little jealousy. And Caroline puts her through her paces a bit, doesn't she? So then that's really interesting that through this kind of way of operating she's kept her head down she's done what she can she's been discreet she's tried to be everything to everyone that she needs to be she finally gets the just reward of that and the position changes and caroline wants her there so she's actively trying to give her the perks of the job is she she is and then caroline's hand is also slightly forced by the fact that before charles dies his brother dies and that means that he unexpectedly inherits an earldom because his older brother was always going to be the earl and so he becomes Suffolk, and that allows Henrietta to become the Countess of Suffolk. And so her social status has gone up, and this forces Caroline's hand, because it's not appropriate for a Countess to be a woman of the bedchamber, and she has to find her another position within the household. But it's interesting that she does get to be mistress of the robes, because that's actually quite a desirable one. Caroline wasn't going to choose someone who's going to dress her badly as her mistress of the robe. So I think there was respect between the two of them, certainly in terms of fashion sense at the, at the very least. That's making me think of the, the painting, the beautiful painting of Henrietta as well. What time period was so that? that the, the painting of Henrietta where she's wearing the pink dress and she's looking pensively out into the landscape. That painting dates from 1723-24. So that's right around the time that Henrietta starts to build Marble Hill. And again, it is around the time where she's certainly establishing herself as an intellectual too, because that painting was actually commissioned by her friend Alexander Pope. It was definitely commissioned so that he could have a portrait of Henrietta. He wanted to have portraits of his great friends. It's painted by an artist called Charles Jervis. Together, they seem to have come up with this scheme for her to be painted in an Arcadian landscape, not dissimilar to the one in Twickenham where she is building Marble Hill, with this kind of hand-to-chin kind of intellectual pose. So you see that she's progressed from this court ingenue mistress, youthful, eager, charming, to someone who's more known for their intellect and the literary circles that they move in. That portrait is marking a point for Henrietta in her life, reaching an independence of means and also an independence of thought. 
So we're talking late 30s for her at this point, is that right? She's born 1689, yeah, so 24, yeah. Okay, I love that painting. Also because you're mentioning the landscape and the Arcadian aesthetic and the river, very clever because that landscape still exists. That view can't be changed. It's listed, it's protected, am I right? The landscape that we see in the painting seems to be something of a a kind of a slightly mystical made-up version of the view from Richmond Hill, which, yes, exactly as you say, was protected by an act of parliament and it's that act of parliament that actually resulted in Marble Hill being saved for the nation because otherwise whilst they weren't ever proposing to pull down Marble Hill House they were proposing to build a housing estate on what is now the park. (sighs) Protecting the view from Richmond Hill by act of parliament and saying this land cannot be built upon is what saves the character of Henrietta's home and the fact that it's not surrounded by a housing estate today. Oh my goodness hooray for Henrietta and for her cleverness in picking the right spot but all of them I go there and walk the dog I'm very lucky to live around this neck of the woods and it's just breathtaking today you still see the the city you see Twickenham Stadium you see all that but it's still got this absolute picturesque quality it is like a, a painting when you're there and I get so much out of that view I'm so happy that we're able to still look at it pretty much in the same way that they would have yeah and it's all thanks down to local action and local love of that view because actually the family that bought Marble Hill and bought the park with the intention of turning it into a housing estate had already started. There are these photos of workmen digging drains right before this enormous public campaign managed to push that Act of Parliament through. Well, well done them, and hopefully for years to come. We'll talk about Marble Hill and what's happening now, but at this point, people are like, what are you doing? You're in the prime position now where you don't actually really have to do a lot. I say do a lot. As a mistress, I say. You can stand back and kind of be these things in name, but not even physically be needed as much as you used to be, and you're getting all of these perks, but you're walking away from what is probably relative security for her in quite a tumultuous yes. life. And also look, walking away from status, walking away from prestige, walking away from her direct connection to lifeblood of the court, which she's so intimately connected with. But Henrietta is bored. Henrietta is tired. Henrietta would like to go and do her own thing and live a life of quiet retreat and retirement. That's kind of what she's telling everyone that she wants <laughs> to do. And I do think that that is what motivated her in some sense but as we'll see her life doesn't get that boring it's choice isn't it it's about retreating so that she has choice and she's the mistress of her own world I mean that's what she's been working towards her whole life I couldn't agree more she's never had a home to call her own she's never had the ability to decide where she's going to go any given week because she just has to go where the court goes. So 1734 is when she resigns her court position, she ceases to be a royal mistress, and she comes to Marble Hill on a much more permanent basis, essentially. Hurrah. And at this point, she's not picking out clothes for anyone else. She's just getting up, doing what she wants to do in the day and planning it accordingly. And that's when we start to really see how Henrietta's life looks at the reflection of her and her personality and her loves. One thing that does interest me, she surrounded herself with quite a male-dominated friendship set, right? I don't know if that speaks to anything or whether or not there were women that I'm not aware of that were in her circle, but poets, writers, talk to me about her circle. Her circle, I do think there are women, and I will introduce them, but I'll, I'll speak a little bit about the men first. She's friends with Alexander Pope. Jonathan Gay is involved in the early part of building Marble Hill and unfortunately he dies, her great friend's the dramatist. Um, But Alexander Pope is very involved in Marble Hill, not just in stepping in to check that the building work is all going okay, 
but also in the garden. He actually is thought to contribute to a plan of the garden, and that's one of the um, really important documents that has helped English Heritage to recreate Henrietta's garden as part of the recent Marble Hill Revived project. She's also got Jonathan Swift, who she's fallen out with at this point, actually. Apparently, Henrietta wasn't good at using her position as the royal mistress to get her friends' favours, and he (laughs) was basically really annoyed with Henrietta and breaks off their friendship because she doesn't get him a court position that he really, really wants and says that she's selfish and that she doesn't seem to be working for her friend's best interests. I don't know whether those criticisms that are leveled were true or whether Henrietta simply didn't feel like she had that kind of sway. She doesn't seem to have been successful in making any of her friends particularly successful at court. Either that wasn't something she was interested in or it wasn't something she was good at, or maybe she just didn't have as much influence as people thought she did. Yeah, maybe it's all of those things. And also, it's one of the reasons reasons why Caroline liked her in the end because she realized she wasn't that ambitious so you know at the end of the day she just kind of wanted to just fly under the radar let's not push it let's not push that was her mo wasn't it maybe you can relate those behaviors to the fact that her very early experiences of her marriage were all about placating her husband to prevent him his violent outbursts or his erratic behavior she works quietly and not out loud but then she does have some really important female friendships one of which is with the duchess of queensbury who is a literary great as well and fiercely intellectual who lives just across the river from henrietta at petersham there's a portrait of the duchess of queensbury at marble hill today and the other is lady betty germain one of the many things that brings lady betty and henrietta together is their love of porcelain and their love of collecting porcelain talking about porcelain henrietta actually builds a whole other kind of little garden building at marble hill she calls her her Chinese room, which is for her China porcelain collection. Her and Lady Betty Germain talk a lot about their interest with regards to art and decorative arts and ceramics. But also the other reason Lady Betty Germain is so important is because Lady Betty introduces Henrietta to her brother and Lady Betty's brother becomes Henrietta's second husband, George Berkeley. They married in the mid 1730s, just a couple of years after Charles passes away. Actually, her decision to marry again is something that shocks a lot of people, partly because she's in her mid forties and it's not super, super common for women to remarry at that point in their lives, but also because people say that George is short and not that interesting (laughs) and gouty as well. Oh, wow. Um, But George and Henrietta's relationship seems to have been a love match. Their letters are very romantic to one another. Whenever he's away, she writes to him saying, I wish you were here, and he does the same kind of thing and calls her my life, my joy, my soul. And yeah, they seem to have really found happiness with one another. You've ruined my illusion because I've heard about the second marriage and now you're like, he's short and gouty. I'm like, that's not the image I had in my head. <laughs> I'm like, go Henrietta. Oh, yes, and he's going to be devastatingly handsome obviously that's completely superficial but you know to match this future with that beautiful portrait of her I always imagined you Brad Pitt in britches It's just me. So I love this moment. What I love about it is that she's obviously had such a tumultuous life because of the men in her life, father, husband, but she's not given up and she doesn't have to, like you say, this is not something that socially she needs to do. And this is very much her choice. Again, it's about choice. She doesn't need financially to get married again. She doesn't need her social status to get married again, because even though her husband has died, she's still the dowager countess. 
She still has a title and she doesn't need to do it for her home because she has an independent home. She does it purely because she wants to marry again and because she loves George. She's got the dream scenario that she never had. She's got this house. She's the lady of the house. It's her house, her aesthetic. And she's now got the husband as well. I'm sure she has regrets that she can't involve the son at this point. But she does create her own family in a way, doesn't she? She does. So throughout Henrietta's lifetime, she always maintains a close relationship with her brother back from Blickling Hall. And her brother has a very uh, bountiful marriage in terms of offspring. He has something close to almost 10 children or so. He says to Henrietta, I think it would be wonderful if little Dorothy and little John came to live with you at Marble Hill. So she has her niece and her nephew come to live with her and they grow up at Marble Hill with Henrietta and her second husband very much as parents. And they seem to have a very happy, successful family life there, at least for 11 years, which is how long the marriage between Henrietta and George lasts before, sadly, George passes away. But she does manage to capture that relationship. And evidently her relationship with Dorothy was really, really strong because when Dorothy grows up and has her own daughter when her daughter is about 10 and she's called her little daughter Henrietta as well and says little Henrietta you should go and live with your great aunt and little Henrietta goes off to be her companion this is when Henrietta would have been in her 70s and so she has her great niece come to live with her at that point so she does have this multi-generational family that she's able to create and also I want to talk about FOP to complete the picture postcard of Marble Hill at that point where she's got the family tell me more about what her daily life would have entailed Henrietta had dogs throughout her life we know the names of at least three of them but we think she had way more than that we know of FOP Aza and Marquis, all great names. We're not 100% sure, but we think they're all Spaniels. That was the most common portly type dog at the time. They would often come and sit on your lap and act as a little warmer during the winter. That was one of the great reasons to have a dog. I have a Cavapoo, so he's part King Charles Cavalier. So yes, this speaks to me in so <laughs> many ways. He's called Merlin, but I love those names. Henrietta's days at Marble Hill, she would have woken up around eight or so and she would have done her toilette. She would have had one of her maids come to arrange her hair and to dress her. And then she would have gone down a little staircase into her breakfast parlour, which you can see today at Marble Hill. She would have had bread and butter and tea, importantly, for breakfast, which was a kind of new commodity that was being imported from China at this time and vastly expensive, but you know, really important part of 18th century table culture that she could drink out of her export porcelain tea bowls that she would have discussed with Lady Betty Germain. And then she may have taken a walk in the garden if the weather was fine. Could have visited her grotto, which she used to adorn with shells along with little Henrietta, her great niece, that's something they would do together, decorate the grotto. She might have checked in with her gardener, whose name was Daniel Crafts, to see how's the kitchen garden. They had fruit trees, they grew different lettuces, and maybe she would have been planning some kind of dinner party for later that evening. In her later life, one of her very regular visitors was Horace Walpole over from Strawberry Hill, the literary intellectual figure and creator of the Gothic novel genre. He used to come over in the evenings they would have dinner in Henrietta's great room which is this fabulous double height cube space with lots of rich decoration and they might have sat by the fire she had a um, enormous eight leaf Chinese lacquer screen which is still at Marble Hill today which has in the original lacquer Henrietta's coat of arms and she would have set that up 
to create some privacy around the fire for her and Horace. Also helps to keep up the drafts when she was an older woman. I also think maybe it would have helped to create a smaller space so she could have listened to him more clearly. You imagine her holding her hearing horn. Horace Walpole liked to ask her to recount the glory days of the late 17, 14, 50 time. The new courts and the glamour and the excitement and all of that. And so that's what they probably would have discussed before sending him back over to Strawberry Hill. Because at this point she's being waited on great but also obviously there's still an air of discreetness I'm sure but she's able to tell her friend maybe some of the gossip that she's been sat on all these years at this point <laughs> yes, she's enjoying he it because he writes in his memoirs all about the discussions that they have brilliant I think he said quite a few interesting things about her in those diaries yeah in those notes. he's very entertaining on Henrietta and he had a lot of affection for her at this point he's a generation younger than her she's an elderly lady now she's someone he's actively seeking out to go and have yeah, a Yeah, I think she with. would have found it very flattering to have yeah. him call upon her and they seem to have made a good pair. And like you say, you don't necessarily get her to listen to you, get her to talk about her stuff and then it's golden. Tell us about some of the other objects that are still there that, that would have been there at the time that you can still go and see. In the great room, this space that I've described as being double height, very grand, it's her showing off room, really. It's her entertaining space. She had five paintings by an artist, Giovanni Battista Panini. Panini was an artist who specialised in paintings of Rome that were made for people who came on the grand tour as a kind of souvenir, as memento. So you're going to have things like the Colosseum and you're going to have Trojan's Column and sculpture and the Pantheon and all those kinds of sites. But what Panini often did was get all of those sites, which obviously geographically spread across Rome, and put them all into one painting. <laughs> so that has a term, it's called a capriccio, the painting, an idealised, imagined view. And so Henrietta had five of these paintings in her great room, above the doors and above the um, chimney piece. I think they're particularly interesting because Henrietta never had the chance to travel to Rome. We know that she went to France twice and she went to Hanover once, but beyond that, she didn't manage to do much international travel. So for her, these are really giving her a painted tour of Rome, a place that she'll never get to see, and giving her more insight into the Italianate, the classical, the architectural style that she has built her house in. So I think they're really important. Because she was a woman and she didn't get to go on the grand tour like an aristocratic man, how she compensated for that by having these wonderful paintings in her home. And you know that she would have absolutely gone had she been able to. What about the tables? Ah, yes. In the great room, there were four marble-topped tables. Today, we only have one of those original tables left. Because in 1824, Henrietta's heirs sold off the contents of the house, even though Henrietta had put in her will very deliberately not to do that. She knew what she was doing when she built that yeah, place. Yeah, she was very particular about her wishes. Almost everything that belonged to Henrietta has unfortunately been lost. Some things we've been able to repatriate, like those five Panini paintings, because we had photos from the late 19th century that show the paintings in the room and then we were able to go and find them from that. This table, curiously, turned up in Australia, reputedly to hairdressers, which is very entertaining. And the only reason we know that it came from Marble Hill, because all the inventory says is four great marble top tables. It does not say four great marble top tables with giant peacocks on the front, which would have been helpful, is <laughs> because the actual table, when it was discovered, had a piece of paper stuck to the underside of it, which was an auction notice. And it said on this that it was being sold and the table had come from Marble Hill. 
So that's how we managed to trace that story back and understand that this table actually had an original Marble Hill provenance. And one of the reasons it's so fascinating is because it has a big peacock carved into the front of the table. And that's lovely because the peacock is the symbol of Juno, who's the protectress of women. There seems to be this interesting sort of synergy between Juno, the peacock, Henrietta creating this as a house divine for a woman and this kind of independent space for her. The interesting mythological associations of, of Marble Hill and the carving there continue. For instance, if you look at the shutters in the great room, which um, are just above where the tables now sit, there is an owl on each of the shutters. The owl, again, is the symbol of Minerva, goddess of wisdom. All of these things that really make you think of Henrietta and you, you think, she must have told her carvers, can you include an owl? Can you include these symbols? That's what I want. That's what's meaningful to me. Absolutely. And this is a woman who knows what she's reading and, and talking about. She, she knows her classical symbols and she, she knows about architecture. She's reading Vitruvius, the Tranicus, and she's talking to Alexander Pope. And yeah, she's, she's not letting symbolism escape her. And also this house is a sanctuary, so that makes sense with the peacock. It is a safe place. It's protecting her. I didn't realise that. That's new to me because it also makes you think of Bess of Hardwick because she did a similar thing with her embroidery and chose women from classical history so that she could express that part of her, her independence, her in, independent thinking. Those symbols were used all over, weren't they? And it might seem incidental to us today, but I think you have to remember that the process of commissioning furniture or commissioning carving was slow and laborious. You had to have conversations with people about it. So it's not like this was just a flippant, unthinking suggestion that there would have been real thought that went into those choices. And like you said, they're heirlooms. She's listing them. She's saying, don't sell them. This is me. This is an extension of me. This is an outward expression of who I am. And it meant so much to her. I mean, look at what she'd done to get to that. We've come full circle. We've come to what we can experience of Henrietta now in the contemporary world, how we can still feel her reaching through the centuries. I want to talk a little bit about her legacy. She was quite aware that this would be something that will have a lasting effect. But what do you think she wanted her legacy to be at the time when she was alive? So when she was alive, she was really thinking about how could she pass Marble Hill onto the next generation? And also, interestingly, how could women inherit Marble Hill? Her nephew, John, inherits Marble Hill. He gets to take it on and he, he kind of lives there briefly. But she makes specific provision in her will for her female descendants to be able to inherit Marble Hill and for it not to go through a male line by default. Little Henrietta, her great niece, ends up inheriting Marble Hill because Henrietta puts the specific provision in the will that it doesn't just automatically go down a male line. So she's really thinking about that and she, she's really seeing that Henrietta Hotham, that was her name, should have the opportunity to inherit it. Unfortunately, when Henrietta Hotham passes away, it does go to a male line who then does not choose to keep Marble Hill and elects to sell it. She did her best. She did absolutely everything I think she could have and she was thinking about how can my home which I created as a pace of independence away from the clutches of men who don't always have your best interests at heart. How can I make that possible for my female descendants and not just my male ones? How can I help them not have to go through what I went through? Yeah. On the flip side, what is the importance of us knowing about Henrietta's story today? And what is the importance of Marble Hill today? I think the importance of Henrietta's story today is to show that there was a lot more nuance if you had intelligence, means, and 
you know, not an undue amount of privilege that Henrietta did have. But unhappy marriage didn't have to be a prison for an 18th century woman. And by her tenacity, it was possible to find independence and find a new life. I think that is really important because it's easy to make assumptions about the rights of women in the 18th century. And also her ability to get this legal separation. I wouldn't call Henrietta a fighter for women's rights or a proto-feminist. I wouldn't go that far. But the precedent of getting that legal separation, even in the very narrow context of two people who were noble and a woman who had the benefit of legal advisors, it's still a step along the road, I think, towards women in history being able to access more of their own rights within marriage. It's a good example and it's a hallmark of a touchstone that you can go back to. And it's an important point of nuance within the story. It's not just like black and white before divorce became widespread and, you know, women of all stations had access to it. You were just 100% stuck. There is nuance within that story. There's room for individuals and there's room for tenacity, will and intelligence to create your own story. And it's an example of how we should all look deeper. You get given this one dimensional, she was mistress to the king. She's kind of been dismissed in history as this person that was there and she did this and Mm. it was connected to a man and it was connected to a king and that was that. Hold on a minute. There's so much more to this woman and her story and that can have relevance today. That can inspire us, that can make us say that what she did and that what she's left here is evidence of that that we can enjoy today. And I think that's really important. So next time, you know, you hear name yeah hold on a minute this is a woman we're talking about and let's talk about the human and see what that human being achieved um beyond this one dimensional title has she been depicted in tv and film at all in any way that's of note not to my knowledge no i do think that her story is ripe for adaptation yeah let's hope that her name continues to spread and that some TV producers get excited about it. These stories are really important to be told. This is real life. This happened. This is the shame of it. If these stories don't come out because they're, they actually are real people with these real stories that we can get a lot from. Our correspondence, we have Henrietta's voice, which I think is so crucial. You know, Had those letters been put in a book? Tracy's book draws okay. hugely on the correspondence and, and has tra- transcribed it um, at, at length. And, um, you know, it's really that kind of foundational work that she did in the early 2000s that has brought Henrietta's voice so clearly, I hope, into when you actually visit Marble Hill and you, you hear directly from the woman herself. We're going to do some light-hearted questions to finish off here, if that's okay, Tessa. First off, do you have your favourite Henrietta anecdote for us? My favourite Henrietta anecdote is about Henrietta's dogs. <laughs> so she had many dogs, as I mentioned, Fop, Asa, Marquise. Her friend, Lord Chesterfield, who lived at Ranger's House, which is another English heritage property on Blackheath, South London, they used to write to each other regularly. And sometimes, when they're feeling particularly silly, they would write to each other in the guise of their dogs. And Henrietta (laughs) would even sign the letter by inking up her dog's paw and pressing it on the paper. That is one of my favourite anecdotes about Henrietta. That makes me think of the Peel family, who also lived at Marble Hill. And is it Pi, who was also a part of the entourage at one point? Pi is another dog that lived there, am I right? Yes, yeah. So the Peels had a dog called Pi, which I actually just think is the best name for a dog ever. <sighs> they built 
the stables, which is now the cafe at Marble Hill. And they kept their racehorses there. Is there any book that's put all these animals in? So I'm, I'm one of these people that has a dissertation topic idea every day, but here's another one, you know, that putting a book together with all these amazing animals that have lived in this Couldn't you write a, a dissertation which is about a historic house through the eyes of animal history? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I really think you could, because for me, this is what makes these places come alive, isn't it? You know, you just then not only get a sense of the person and the people, but then these animals that would have been running around are very much loved and very much part of the family. Next question. If Henrietta had a superpower, what would her superpower be? I feel like you could go two ways with this. You could either go the way of she had the ability to kind of be invisible because she's the Swiss. and She can sort of be a master of going under the radar. But I want to make Henrietta more present than that. And so maybe we would give Henrietta the power to change people's minds. She was so good at being socially adept and charming and quietly working away. But I do quite like the invisibility thing too. Yeah, let's give her two powers. And also I love that she's already got a superhero name. Like the Swiss is just, it's the one, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I imagine a lot of chocolate and uh, watches as well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The clock featured in her life. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm imagining the outfit and everything. Let's add another one. Let's just give her super hearing. Let's just, you know, flip it. And the hearing horn does does work. That's her, her, like, um, attribute, you know, the horn. (laughs) This is like Thor's hammer. It's Henrietta's horn. It becomes this amazing hearing instrument that means that she can hear something across the world, like the other side of the world. Oh, this is this is perfect. So this superhero film has to happen because we've got some corkers on the podcast. So I imagine them all coming together, right? Marvel style. Well, I just have to close up by saying thank you so much, Tessa, for being here today. And to just tell everyone that's listening, please go and visit Marble Hill because you will not be disappointed. There are so many things you can do. You can write letters, can't you? You can do all sorts of interesting things there and put yourself in the position of Henrietta as well as see all these gorgeous things that we've talked about you can and the wonderful thing about Marble Hill is that it is free and open five days a week Wednesday to Sunday please come on down you'll have a very warm welcome from our team on site and get to know Henrietta Howard in her wonderful home it's been a labor of love for everyone that's involved in it and I think that that's another part of Henrietta's legacy which is important it's still a a focus point and it's bringing the community together which is what she did in her own way it's still resonating reverberating through the years go and visit people (laughs) please do (laughs) thanks so much Tessa thank you it's been fascinating I've had a lovely time and I'm I'm going to go and find out books about houses and dogs. (laughs) Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you.